following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Okay, we're good. As I was preparing for my sermon, I thought it would be a good idea to look back through our summer of preaching and do a quick review to see what everybody preached on, um, both for our benefit and for Heath's. I know he's, you know, listened to some of the, the sermons before, but just as a quick review, I thought it would be a good idea. Um, when I was listening through the sermons again, I realized something interesting. Many points from my sermon had already been preached on throughout the course of the summer. I had chosen on the uh, subject of obedience to the will of God, which is the overarching theme of it, which as I was studying it was kind of a daunting task because uh, there's a lot involved in it. But instead of feeling disappointed when these things were talked about already, I was actually relieved <laughs> and thankful because um, some of the foundation and groundwork was already laid down for me to build upon. It kind of took some of the stress off of me. And I wasn't sur- surprised that it happened either because we are preaching from the same book after all. <laughs> um, so that's a good thing. Also, I wasn't originally supposed to be the last one to preach, um, but I'm glad it turned out that way because, first of all, it gave me extra time to prepare, of course, which I was thankful for. But it gave me a unique perspective to see how God was working throughout the entire summer and um, and just realize that as I was preparing for my sermon. So that was pretty cool. Our prayer at the start of this journey was that the Holy Spirit would lead, and I'm sure that he did just that. So let's take a brief look and call to mind what each person preached on throughout the summer. I'm not going to mention them in chronological order, but in a more of a theological order. Craig preached on the rich young ruler, which exposes the fact that no one is good but God alone. We are powerless to save ourselves, but with God all things are possible. George preached on having faith in Jesus as the Messiah, who fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies and became our salvation. Randy DeTrude preached that we are saved by grace through this faith, and the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of an inheritance in heaven. It is for this joy set before us that we must pick up our crosses and follow him. Greg Twitchell preached on what it means to be the bride of Christ. We have the confident hope of his coming, and the responsibility of being ready while he prepares a place for us in heaven, where we will enjoy our new life with him. Zach preached on living lives that are pleasing to God, being living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Mark Bickford preached on seeking out the will of God through prayer, taking time to be still and listen, to obey his voice and receive his blessings. Craig preached on obeying the command to not live in paralyzing fear, but to put our trust in God. Mike preached on obeying God as, our, as individuals in our service and love for one another. Ben preached on the importance of obeying God's structure for families. Mark Bickford preached on obeying God's great commission for the family of families, the church, um, which is to make disciples. Nate preached on the Apostle Paul's biblical model for spreading the gospel. And finally, John Aaron preached on the importance of sharing the gospel and giving a reason for the hope that is in us, 
through the, our testimony of what God has done in our life. That's our summer. <laughs> it's been awesome. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, just, let's, let's open in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, your goodness is, is clearly seen in all that you do for us. Um, and we just give you thanks, O oh God, for the grace that you have given us and the faith that we have, are, are able to have in you, which saves us. Pray, Father, now that you would speak, and I want to echo the words of our Pastor Keith to fix the words between my mouth and your people's ears. Amen. As I mentioned before, the theme I chose is the obedience to the will of God, but more specifically, what makes obedience possible? What makes obedience desirable? I was drawn to obedience almost immediately after John had uh, asked me to preach because around the same time, I was reading through 1 Samuel with my boys at night. Um, We came to the section in 1 Samuel 15 where the Lord gave King Saul a command and he disobeyed. I wanted to explore what motive Saul had or didn't have in making his decision to disobey God. Um, this, the story is Samuel, the prophet Samuel, gave a command to God, I mean, to Saul from the Lord, which was to destroy the Amalekites, <clears throat> utterly destroy them. Men, women, and children, and all the livestock, because they had, um, been very evil to them when they came out of the land of Egypt. They, they had attacked them and caused them great harm. So the Lord had saw this iniquity, which was many hundreds of years prior, but all this time the Amalekites had not changed their ways and it was now time to exact his judgment on them. So he used Saul to do that. Saul went to destroy the Amalekites and um, he did destroy the people, but he failed in, in two areas. He allowed the king Agag to survive and he also spared all, all of the livestock, um, all the livestock that was good and pleasing to him. Samuel came back to see how Saul had done and he heard all of the sound of the, the animals, you know, bleeding sheep and lowing oxen and all of this. He said, what's all of this about? And Saul said, well, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went and destroyed the Amalekites. He said, but the animals, <laughs> you, you have not obeyed. He said, well, the people wanted to save them, which he was kind of deflecting at that point, the, the blame. He said, the people wanted to save them so that they could make sacrifices to the Lord. <laughs> that didn't fly. Samuel said, does the Lord delight more in sacrifices and burnt offerings than obeying the word of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. So that's kind of what got me into the um, the realm of obedience. Um, but after this, God replaced Saul with David because this disobedience um, took his kingship away, essentially. So he replaced him with David, who, though he was not perfect, he was a man after God's own heart. Um, and it was prophesied that someone would come through his line to be perfectly obedient, 
qualifying him to be our atoning sacrifice. Who is that? Jesus the Messiah. The scripture passage that we'll focus on today is 1 Peter chapter 1. It is the whole chapter, so it's going <laughs> to... We have a lot of ground to cover, but it's okay because it's going to be good. Um, this chapter encompasses the whole idea of obedience and why obeying God can be delightful and something that we want to do more of. But before we jump into the text, um, I wanted to share a little context that I found helpful. The author is Simon Peter. He was probably the best-known apostle of Jesus who began following him early on in his ministry. Jesus called him Peter, which means rock, because he knew that his wavering and unpredictable behavior would one day become stable and reliable like a rock. He was loud-spoken, and leadership came naturally to him. He was often selfish and let his impulsiveness cause him to do things that he regretted, like denying Jesus three times. But there was, however, a sense of loyalty deep in his heart um, to Christ, as evidenced by his anxiety when Jesus' body was missing from the tomb and his great joy when he realized that he was alive. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter received the Holy Spirit, he immediately became a leader among the Christians of that time. First Peter was written around AD 64-65 when there began to be an increase in persecution and suffering of the new believers. Up until then, the church had been able to spread the gospel peaceably um, without too much opposition. But under the rule of Nero, the emperor in Rome at that time, um, Rome reacted against their claims to believe in an invisible God and a risen Christ with contempt and hatred. The Apostle Paul's death around this time was also an indication that the government was no longer tolerating Christians but actively oppressing them. So when the churches began to notice this shift in attitude, they were concerned about the future of the church. Was this the end? They, they were asking these kinds of questions, and they looked to their leaders for the answers. And so, Peter wrote this letter um, as an encouragement to them and to prepare them for the sufferings that they were going to have to endure for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of obedience. So let's read our text today, which is 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is in imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels longed to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Peter's introduction is crucial to the rest of his letter, um, and I didn't want to gloss over it. So let's take a few minutes to break it down. Who was he writing to? He said the elect exiles of the dispersion. The word elect here simply means that God chose us. And Christians are the objects of God's gracious choice. And Peter was reminding his listeners that they belonged to God. The phrase exiles of the dispersion uh, stems from the Jewish diaspora. And the Jewish diaspora was just the term that was given to the dispersing of the Jews throughout the world after they were forcibly exiled from Israel and from Judah um, to Babylon. So that's just what that means. But here, Peter is using this phrase as a figure of speech, um, meaning as Christians, we are exiles or strangers in this world, and our true home is in heaven with God, the place that we are longing to get to and return to someday. Um, and now we can also notice the, the Trinity at work in, in verse 2, which is pretty cool. It says, <clears throat> According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This does not mean that God looked into the future. Oops. 
and dropped his microphone. Now, it looked into the future and saw the belief that we would have, but rather our belief is a result of God's timeless sovereignty and love. His love was designated in advance for the purpose of setting apart his chosen ones for holiness, for knowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit is God's catalyst for holiness, a catalyst being the substance that causes a reaction but is not consumed by it. So once we are regenerated or born again by the Spirit as believers, he activates in us the ability to grow in righteousness and holiness, to have our character and desires more closely resemble that of God's. It is very important to point out that holiness, righteousness, and obedience would not be possible without the Spirit's intervention or help. And our part in sanctification is yielding to the Spirit's working in our lives. And then for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This refers to Christ's atoning work on the cross where his blood was shed to begin a new covenant with the elect believers. Just like in the Old Testament, the old covenant God made with his chosen people, the Jews, was inaugurated with the shedding of the blood of animals. So there's that correlation there. God's loving election, the Spirit's continual sanctification, allows us to pursue obedience to the commands of Christ. <clears throat> so in the context of persecution, Peter wants his hearers to remember that God chose them. He wants his hearers to remember that God loved them before time began, that the Spirit is always there to help him, help them, and that obedience to Christ is our goal. For the rest of the chapter, I'm going to just touch on the highlights of it um, with some supporting scriptures, which will hopefully give us a good grasp of how it relates to obedience. First, we'll talk about what makes obedience possible, and then we'll look at some of the motives we are given to obey. Grace and faith. Did you know that having faith in God is a command? It's not just a suggestion or a good idea, but an imperative to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, a command, believe, that you will, and you will be saved. So, if faith in the gospel is a command, then faith is also our very first act of obedience to God. But can we do this on our own? No. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is only because of the sovereign grace of God that we can have the obedience of faith through which we are saved. And as a result of that, we have no grounds for boasting, but give all of the glory to God. It makes sense, too, that faith is required for all future acts of obedience, because why would anyone believe in a God, sorry, why would anyone obey the commands of God that they don't believe in? Peter wrote in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This indicates that grace and peace are not just one-time gifts, but a continual gifting from God um, throughout the course of our lives. Grace is not only the forgiveness of sin, it is that, but 
the forgiveness of sin, which we have peace with God. You know, that's the reason we have peace with God. But it is also power to continue in obedience. God always gives grace precisely when we need it for the justification from past and future sins, for our sanctification in our current life, and finally for our glorification at the return of Christ. So now we've learned that grace through faith in Christ is what makes obedience to God possible. And now I wanted to highlight some of the concepts that Peter includes in his letter concerning obedience, hope, and joy. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's be honest. Some of God's commands are kind of hard to swallow, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Turn the other cheek. These are all things that are kind of hard for our spirits to accept. It's hard to see the benefit of obeying commands like these, especially when our sinful nature desperately wants to do the opposite. This is one of the biggest reasons why we disobey. is because we do not confidently believe that our obedience to God will bring us more blessing than our disobedience. Trust plays a huge role in obedience. Think of Abraham. He was willing to sacrifice the promised son, Isaac, even though the command didn't make sense because he trusted that God was faithful to bring about his promise to make him the father of many nations. Noah was willing to build a boat when there was no sign of water, even when everyone around him was mocking him for it because he trusted that God was faithful to save him through the flood. Even Peter was obedient to Jesus' command to throw his net on the other side of the boat after a whole night of catching nothing. And his obedience was rewarded with the blessing of a huge catch of fish. God is always, always, always faithful to reward obedience. Even if we don't see those blessings in this current life, Peter says that we are born again to a hope that is kept in heaven for us. What does that Christian hope consist of? Let's look to scripture. In Titus 2.13 it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Romans 8.23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 5.5, For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Romans 5.2 Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And lastly in Titus 3.7 So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life.
So what is our hope as Christians? It is the appearing of Jesus Christ, the redemption of our physical bodies, the attainment of righteousness, the sharing in the glory of God, and eternal life. Praise be to God. This is our hope. And it's a hope that we can put every ounce of our trust in, a hope that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is because of this hope that we can obey the hard commands, even if it costs our life, because we know that we know that we know that God will be faithful to bring about his promises. And this hope gives us great joy. Peter says in verses 6 through 9, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter urged them to hold fast to their genuine faith, especially in the midst of persecution, and rejoice with a joy that is so filled with the hope of glory that no amount of suffering and trials could take it away. Can we honestly say that we have this type of joy? I think it's important to have a proper understanding of what Christian joy is, because with the wrong definition, these verses could actually be discouraging to Christians who don't feel like they have it. So what is joy? Firstly, joy is an emotion that cannot be forced into existence. John Piper who wrote Desiring God, he deals with the subject of joy a lot. He wrote that um, joy is a spontaneous, emotional response of the heart. We can put ourselves in situations that might produce joy, but we can't force joy to happen. The Christian joy that we were talking about is produced by the hope we have in salvation. And if we do not have this hope, we will not have this joy. Secondly, Christian joy is unshakable and deeply rooted in our hope as opposed to the emotion of happiness, which can be superficial and dependent on our circumstances. Not only can joy withstand emotional pain and suffering, but the interesting thing is it can actually gain strength through it. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul described himself as, ha- as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. James also talks about joy amidst trials. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This sounds like hope to me. (laughs) Lastly, Christian joy 
does not originate in the spirit of man. For by nature, we are sinners. And what originates from the spirit of man is sin. Joy is a fruit of the spirit of God, which can only be supplied by him through the work of sanctification. So now that we know what joy is, what does it have to do with obedience? Everything. (laughs) First of all, to find our joy, our satisfaction, our pleasure in God is obedience. The command of joy is written all throughout Scripture. For example, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice, and many others. If we delight in the Lord, our desire is going to be for his will to be done, which will result in all kinds of obedient acts. That is why scripture can say, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because our desires will be his desires. However, if we delight in the passions of our former ignorance, as Peter puts it, our desires will be for the things of the flesh, which will result in sin. Where you find your joy is also where you will find your desires resulting in either obedience or disobedience. The next two concepts I wanted to highlight are fear and love. So let's skip down to verses 13 through 19. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And we already read about having a love for God in the middle of the passage of joy. In Deuteronomy 10, 12-13, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Some people might argue that fear and love are incompatible. But this is because they don't truly understand what the fear of the Lord really is. We normally use the word fear in the context of like an imminent, imminent danger or harm, which will cause in us, you know, the reaction, of the, the fight or flight reaction. You know, run away. <laughs> I'm afraid. But that is not what the fear of the Lord is. It's altogether different than that. It is the emotional response to the glory and holiness of God that humbles us and results in awe and respect and loyalty. This brings to mind how C.S. Lewis described Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is not safe, but he is good. 
And the children who heard about Aslan were nervous to meet him, but they also looked forward to it. The interesting thing about the fear of the Lord is that instead of triggering the response to run away, it drives us back into the safety and security of the arms of Jesus. Because he is the one that takes away our offense from the Father's eyes. Without Christ, the wrath of God's judgment would be aimed at us, and that is a reason to fear. But it is also part of our motivation for reconciliation to God and future obedience out of love for Christ and the work that he did for us. So fear and love are perfectly compatible. And this is a theme that's repeated all throughout Scripture as well. The problem arises when we replace fear and love of the Lord with fear and love of literally anything else. This is where King Saul went wrong. He loved himself far too much. And he feared the people more than he feared God. And so decided to disobey the word of the Lord. In essence, our outward responses to God's commands will tell us a lot about where our heart is. And God cares about our motivation for obedience just as much, if not more, than obedience itself. In 1 Corinthians, we read, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I gave away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Then at the end of the chapter, it says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. When asked, Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. At the end of uh, chapter 1 in First Peter, in verses 22 through 23, Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We will not obey perfectly, because we are still battling our sinful desire. But we need to remember the hope we have that is waiting for us in heaven when obedience is hard. We need to remember the joy we have in the Lord, making it a, a delight to do his will. We need to remember to have a reverent fear of the Lord who is worthy of our obedience. And remember to love the Lord with every aspect of our being because he first loved us. Pursue holiness through the sanctification of the Spirit drawing our power from the continual gift of God's grace. 
now that we know what makes obedience possible and delightful with the right mindset, what does it actually look like for the Christian? The answer to this question is found at the end of Romans 12, which Zach also included in his sermon. So in conclusion, let's read this passage again and let the commands sink deep into our hearts. Romans 12, 9 through 21, marks of the true Christian. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, obedience is not something that we can do on our own. And I'm thankful for that because if it were left up to us, we would, we would be doomed. It is only by your grace through the faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, his salvation that he provided for us on the cross and the hope we have in his resurrection, the joy that brings us, your worthiness of obedience and our love for you, God. Through all of this, it drives us to obedience to you. May this be the theme of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.